0: Solution, time to market, studies, uh, vaccines, treatments, all of that is my previous world. Septic reaction, no nurse, no pharmacy, no physician. It's the jungle and the child died. We create funds bottom up and then we try to see how to make them investable which is a different ask especially when you talk about you know rural areas private equity in frontier markets
1: Welcome to the Beyond Capital podcast in our purpose driven world leadership is increasingly crucial now more than ever stakeholders are demanding the integration of social values and causes in everything from shoes to soap to investments we are bringing you the stories of leaders that are marrying profit with purpose. I'm Eva Yazari, CEO of Beyond Capital.
2: And I'm Ed Stevens, CEO of Appreciate.
1: And this is the Beyond Capital podcast.
2: Today's guest is Florian Kemmerich. Florian is the managing partner of Bamboo Capital Partners. Bamboo is a private equity impact investing firm focusing primarily in financial services, energy, energy agriculture, and healthcare in emerging markets around the world. Florian was previously an executive in biotech and medical device companies around the world and is the chairman of LIF Nanotechnologies, a company seeking treatment for multiple sclerosis.
3: Welcome, Florian. Great to have you.
2: Great pleasure, Eva. Thank you so much.
3: So we want to talk about you and your work, but first um, I would love to hear, just kind of broadly, how you transitioned from your work in medical device space um, and the company seeking treatment for MS to what is known as social impact investing.
0: Yeah, that's a, a good question because originally I started, of course, in healthcare in uh, medical devices. In big corporate originally and then i moved over from big corporate to late-stage startups to help them to raise funds i was a lot in transactions i was also in private equity um and then went also moved into biotech but one of the things which really dates back to my time when i was living in emerging markets was we created a foundation the foundation was focused on continuous medical education and we also supported some so-called extramural surgery programs. That was a truck, basically, with an OR going to the jungle in Chiapas, in La Sierra La Candona, to operate indigenous people on. And we were donating the materials. I came from the industry. Um, and then one of the physicians says, Florent, you have been do- donating and supporting us for so long. Why don't you join us? Come into the jungle and live the experiences. So here I am joining the truck, living in a tent for 10 days and being a scrub nurse, supporting because I'm not a physician, s- helping. And I remember we were, you know, we had this, um, you have this feeling where you're in the OR in a truck and you have this light beams and you see the little patient, a little child, you know, all draped up just a little mouth and it was a cleft lip to be operated on. And I took a picture and I posted it actually on the newsletter of our foundation in Mexico. Just was, I was so amazed about, you know, helping the little child, I'm here, I'm supporting and donating. So six months later, Chuck went in again, I didn't go, I asked the physician, could you check on the child? So the physician went there, came back, and I wanted to have another smile, big smile with a picture just to, to do a subsequent edition of the newsletter, and the physician told me, you know, guess what, the little child died, and I said, what? Yeah. Septic reaction, no nurse, no pharmacy, no physician. It's the jungle. And the child died. So it struck me. It really struck me saying, I cannot just show up, do good, feel good, and leave, because actually I didn't do good. Actually, I did more harm than good, unintentionally, but that's what it was. So when I zoomed forward, and I met years later, when moving to Switzerland, my partner, Jean-Philippe, and learned about impact investing, it struck me, I said, wow, that's it. Capital as a force for good. Not here to do good and feel good, but just to invest and to create infrastructure so those things with a child wouldn't happen. So that was my aha moment. In the past and years back, when I learned about impact investing, which I did not know, I said, that's what I want my life to be devoted to.
2: And when was that?
0: That was in 2002, was the Jungle Experience. And in 2014, 15, 15, I met my partner, Jean-Philippe. I learned about impact investing. And then a year later, he invited me to leave everything behind and join him. So it's a four-year endeavor right now. That's
3: incredible. And so... I know your work quite well. I know that you think big when it comes to impact. You are raising a large fund with many different stakeholders and, and many of whom are already committed. You were also named one of 12 venture capitalists to know in Africa. And so, but you know, coming from your background, I assume that your aha moment also incorporated the awareness or the learning that financial results can be in line with social impact. Can you talk a little bit more about your views? Um, is there? Do you think there's a trade-off between social impact and financial return? Do you think that, you know, this even trade? How does it look for you and your work at Bamboo?
0: Well, Eva, I, I mean, my understanding is Doing good is not a trade-off, even though a lot of people psycholo- psychologically believe that either you make money or you do good. You can't do this, you know, two things at the same time. But I personally, my experience is that it is a risk-reward scenario. If you invest in a company in emerging markets into rural you know, areas, of course, the risk is higher. So now the question is just how do you want to measure that or how you want to ensure that the high risk should give a, right, a high return, which might not be possible in this area. So it's a learning around not that there's a trade-off between socially or ESG you know, doing good and financial returns. It's a risk-reward scenario. And that's where I've seen also in the recent years where technology is a key enabler in terms of to resolve access and affordability of goods and services to the low-income population, which is, again, back to the credo. My personal credo is the wealth of a nation is defined by the amount of its SMEs. Even though in today's world, you know, the COVID coming in, you have the rich countries, you know, providing trillions of money to save SMEs because they would be wiped out, not the big groups, not the really poor people, but really the middle class, which makes them the wealth. And that's where actually we as impact investors on bamboo side focus on providing private debt and private equity to SMEs, to help them to scale the businesses, because that's where we believe we will make a difference and create wealth, poverty uplift, economic inclusion, access to energy, access to finances, access to healthcare, and so on, access to education. So it's all in the same pot. But it is not a question of a trade-off. Because of doing good, you will make less returns. It's a risk-reward scenario.
2: So Florian, digging into that risk and reward, one of the things that I've always believed in investing or doing startups, which is my line of work, is that Risk is really uh, sort of subjective in a lot of cases. Um, or at least it's subject to a wide range of different possible analyses. And information asymmetry is a big part of investing. It It's the thing that allows me to in- invest in a startup. Everybody else thinks I'm crazy, and, and I'm sure there's a market for it. And so actually the risk is lower, but the reward or the return is calibrated off of what the average of everybody thinks that risk is. So getting back to investing in the areas and geographies where you invest, how do you deal with that information asymmetry? It seems like you know, you'd almost always be at a constant disadvantage to the local sort of um, scene.
0: It's a really valid point you're bringing up here. Again, at the end, it's perceived value. When you do a due diligence, you look at, you know, the certain skill sets or you don't have some covered risks, which you might not be aware of. That's a due diligence. But at the end, it's an emotional bet on a perceived value of an entrepreneur or a company or a business model you believe in or you don't, whether it's the United States or whether it's in Zimbabwe or whether it's in Uganda. Now, of course, the further you are away and the less you know about the local circumstances and environment, the harder the, you know, the bet might be. But this is where I believe that data and technology is a key enabler compared to the old models, or let's say data enabled, you know, tech, tech enabled companies to proceed. But at the end, you know, When we invest in SMEs, we back entrepreneurs. We don't want to own their companies. We don't want to provide the management. We are making a bet, sitting on a board, board observer, and working with the company. So you are betting on an entrepreneur, whether the entrepreneur sits in the United States, in Europe, or in Sub Saharan Africa. Of course, it's a question of the relation you have and how much you believe he might be able to do what he wants to do, how adamant is he about the business model. And very often, you know, even our understanding of social entrepreneurs might not be the best companies to invest in because the ambition of a social entrepreneur is not necessarily to scale a business profitably. So there is a, you know, fine balance to be struck. But again, I believe that our experience is basically backing entrepreneurs. It's, it is at the end, the human interaction. You believe if somebody will go the full mile and be is is adamant about it, is skillful and might be successful. But so many companies go different cycles, are close to be, you know, to run out of money, the drywall point well point and still make it, and there's a business model. So the earlier you go in, the riskier it is. But also the later stage you go, the more, you know, uh, competitors you have bidding for a company to invest in. But again, I... I believe it's perceived value. It's not the real value because we judge on our perception, not on reality. So we take certain data points. We do a due diligence to make sure that, you know, let's say certain things are not there to take a certain risk out. But at the end, it's a bet on an entrepreneur, a team and a company, whether they will be successful or not.
3: And we know that achieving the Sustainable Development Goals by 2030 could unlock a tremendous market size and help um, create almost 350 million jobs. Now, this projection has been created before the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, So I would love, you touched on it, Florian, yourself, I would love to understand how are you seeing any changes in the regions where you invest? How are the small and medium sized enterprises responding in your portfolio to public health challenge? Maybe give us a few examples around that, please.
0: Well, first of all, unfortunately I don't have a crystal ball. Because to see what? We how things work. We invited out. you on
2: the show because we thought you had a crystal ball. <laughs>
0: Yeah, maybe have some AI guru, you know, providing with some data and just saying that's the way to do it. That's how everything will work out.
2: Let me get my crystal ball real quick. Okay, now i got it. It's all ready. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's hear your answer first. (laughs) (laughs) So, look, my background
0: personally is from healthcare, biotech. So, pandemics um solution time to market studies uh vaccines treatments all of that is my previous world so i'm pretty familiar with what's going on right now again and i i hope things will be under control in 6 to 12 months yeah flattening a little bit the curve through some hard economic uh, measures And then later on, of course, uh, at a certain moment, put the control and hygiene and did social distancing to show the behavior of population, but at the same time also then kicking some, you know, um, treatments uh, or some, uh, the vaccine's coming, and that's just a matter of time. That's all good. And that's easier or easier to solve in the emerged world. Now for the emerging worlds, and that's very, very different. Because besides the healthcare problem and the economic impact of the pandemic, you have a social real problem. When you have a large portion of your population living day by day, they cannot just be confined like we are two or three months at home and afterwards life goes on or maybe have a government bailout giving me some credits or some money so I can pass that gap. So I don't have to fire my employees or whatever. It doesn't work. So it's a very, very dangerous situation in India, very dangerous situation in governments actually where the governments try to do it. The Western world, confining people to stay at home. It doesn't work. And then you don't have healthcare systems coping with the problem. And you've seen it in Italy and Spain. yeah. Probably, I believe, Germany, Switzerland might be okay to still keep with this. So the death rate will be lower compared to the other countries. The U.S., of course, uh, you know, fractioning the country is a big problem. I think it's a mistake. But again, I might be wrong or right. But if I translate that to the emerging world, probably, you no, know, the countries will just, life goes on. They have a wipeout of older people. I mean, they're much younger in the demographics itself. So the economic effect might be less. Now, the social uprise is a real issue. It's a real risk. Um, And if you're looking uh, behind the scenes, what's going on in India already, and it's just a week. yeah. And the longer this goes, they cannot stay like this for three months because they will have civil wars or whatever coming up. So it's a fine balance. Now, before COVID-19, we would have said, okay, our companies, you know, we're servicing the bottom of the pyramid. You know, whether Wall Street is high or low, it doesn't matter. You know, whatever the interest rate or... It doesn't matter. We have a balance of, let's say, uh, geopolitical situations of investing in country A, B, or C. That's why we believe just investing in one country with one fund on one uh, uh, sector is the wrong way to do because you cannot balance the risk, especially when you're investing in dollars or coming. So you need a regional approach and you need a spread, you know, did you risk it because we cannot do on private equity hedging because it's just too expensive. So that's one mechanism. The second mechanism is you look at, you know, geopolitical stability, just saying now I can invest for the next six years, yeah? And then I have to divest because you know you have these waves coming in in emerging markets and you have to foresee these waves and you have to do bets on it. So if you do 10, 15 countries, if it's easier that you might have one or two with a fallout or a sudden change in government. Now COVID is a different ballgame. So we see financial inclusion less effective because at the end it's finance and the banks and the governments, there's a certain mechanism to help. Now, if you go into other sectors, it's a much tougher question so it's really difficult for me to answer that question what will happen I mean you're raising new funds we have new vehicles we have first losses and the first losses take the risk out but this wasn't the past in our previous funds it was private equity pure and you know not protected so it is a it there is an, in, an impact and then of course if you talk about fundraising of course private equity itself, Nobody wants to invest. Now, everybody was talking liquid, liquid, liquid. Now, because of the crash of the stock markets, and then also even the yield of the government bonds are crashing, people don't know where to place their money. So it's a really, you know, people are scared. However, what we're seeing is that sustainable development goals, human nature, people being worried about humanity, and thinking different, not just the IRR, the freaking, you know, chasing the freaking IRR. Uh, I have money, I need more to make more money. So it, as, it actually is changing. So it's interesting that right now we have much deeper conversation with investors on a more impact side, on the meaning of what they're using capital as a force for good versus in the past, where the question is, is it concession returns or not concession returns? And then you have a discussion whether. You know, what is a market return based on the risk-reward scenario? So again, it is a major disruption. I personally believe it is in great benefit for the SDGs overall, for people just wanting to do something different. But we don't know how it will play out specifically in the emerging markets. Yeah, absolutely. And I
3: think you made so many great points. Um, first, just to define what the SDGs are, for anybody that doesn't know, we'll put a link in the show notes, but they are a set of 17 goals set up by the UN to help reduce poverty by 2030. Um, and, you know, there's been a ton of research around in the past couple of weeks around how ESG, environmental, social and governance investing, which is different than private equity. It's uh, almost all liquid stocks and, and, and debt instruments has been outperforming. Um, so I think that that, that also shows the strength of the conversations that you pointed out. Florian, though, I would love for you to unpack what first loss means, because I think uh, our audience might be interested in that.
0: Yes. So typically first loss means if I take, so you have a fund with different share classes. You start with a first loss share class, and then you have senior share classes, one or two on top or whatever. Now, originally, the first loss is I take the risk, but I want the upside. So financially, in the financial world, we'll say, okay, take the first loss. I, you come in senior, so I protect for you not losing your money. But your, your return will be capped at a certain level. And then all the rest of the money is for me. Now, in impact investing, in these series of funds we've launched uh, under the SDG 500 umbrella, is and there are some fixed income, some debt and equity, and some pure equity funds. Is that you have actually non for profit capital being invested in a fund only on a catalytic approach? So your goal is not to have financial returns. Your goal is to protect private investors, which are okay to invest at a lower return because they be, they are protected. So it's still market returns for them. But at the same time, um, you can basically put $1 in a first loss and you can raise 3 or $4 on top. So you have a catalytic of attracting private money in the impact investing space. And we have seen that uh, really amazing over the next three, four years um, that you have governments, so the grant givers, you have multilaterals, you have the World Bank, you have even NGOs from a non-for-profit side coming in with capital into a fund, which is not just a grant because a grant is a one-off. Here you are catalytic, you attract money, you focus on sustainability, and you measure with, fun- with these funds what's happening on the ground because it's impact investing. But you protect senior share classes and therefore make it possible for investors to invest at a lower return which is market return for them because the risk is taken off.
2: That's interesting. Um, I, I was reading that Bamboo has something like $400 million under management. Is that right?
0: That's the p- portion which is pure private equity and is um, the past. That's correct. Okay. And now we're raising $500 million on top in six funds with different partners.
2: Okay. And how many people work at Bamboo total? How many associates 30, and partners? 35. 35. How, 35 many, how many deals do you do a year then? Now, the 500 million uh,
0: partnership, because it's not just Bamboo, it's with UN agencies, it's with NGOs, it's with DFIs together on the ground working. Um, that's where we're raising $500 million to invest actually in hundreds of companies, private debt especially the missing middle, which is beyond microfinance, but below where the banks lend, because that's where we see the impact to be made, because microfinance works. You know, a lot of banks do that, Um, but now it's really beyond that and below where the banks lend, the missing middle finance, whether it's smaller farmers or SMEs in least developed countries. Then gender is a specific, clear focus, gender justice, women-led, women-employed, women-benefited. But then we have, of course, the private equity portions where we go early into companies. So the ticket sizes actually have become smaller compared to where we started off, 5 to 15 million, you know, 12, 13 years ago. Now we're going smaller and smaller and smaller, which is detrimental to our fundraise actually. So now our difficulty is we are not an asset manager which creates products for their customers or their clients, which is normally the investor. I create a fund for my investors, yeah, and then I have to deploy it accordingly. We create funds bottom up, and then we try to see how to make them investable, which is a different ask, especially when you talk about you know, rural areas, private equity in frontier markets.
3: Right. And and tell us about an example of one of your companies. I, I also wanna shift gears and hear about. florian personal story but first paint that picture for our listeners
0: well some exciting stories of course we have invested early on in microfinance institutions which were non-for-profit micro lending institutions initially we provided equity to them to help them work with them to to get them regulated banks and these regulated banks have been growing so you have, I mean, many stories in Mongolia with Hasbank, one of the third largest banks today in Mongolia. Stories like with uh, Vitas, which is now, you know, in the, um, Eastern Europe and Middle Eastern parts, really a ma- major provider. You have, uh, Mibanko, which is one of the largest actually in the world and microfinance owned by Credit Corp. So those are the, the early, early portions. Then you have success stories because as we have, you know, it's a maturity on the markets also. you have, We have seen from a technology point of view um, the, the mobile money as a tsunami coming and after the mobile money, so first the cell phone connection after cell connection, the mobile money, and now we look at distributed energy. So on the distributed energy, it's a whole different breed because it's not just the big plants and substations to sell energy. Yeah, with big investments on an infrastructure point of view, it's more retail, it's more individual households. So we see there are a lot of major attractions we do, have been doing joint ventures, we have co-invested with energy or telecom providers, which is very interesting. And one of the stories, for example, might be, I mean, we have invested in Greenlight Planet, who's providing individual retail into, I mean... Probably 50, 60 countries right now into millions of devices, and they provide for the the off-grid energy population a first wave. Now the next step is then um, investments like we have done in Bbox yeah. Um, and B-Box basically provides smart utility grids or next-generation grids, which is originally starting with solar home units, but that's just a starting point. They're fully financed, they're AI-driven and controlled in terms of the performance. Performance of the hardware, performance of the people on the ground, the retail stores, but also the customer. The customer creates credit history, and after that, basically, he has credit histories, which is access to finance. He has energy, and he has Internet access, and suddenly, you have a connected rural home, and from there, now, the next way we're looking at is really IoT, both ways on the productivity of the rural home or what they might buy a service they might get. And so it's really exciting, massive uh, transformation. So those are different pieces we have invested in some fintech companies, you know, beyond microfinance, the traditional ones, really amazing. Some of them went from like Lydia from Nigeria is now went to Europe actually with their mobile wallet. So you see a different dynamic where it's not the old impact investing, let's say I do something good of the rural population and I have rural technology, you know, frugal technology for the frugal population, but really different uh, business models where the adoption rate is much faster in Africa. The money you have to spend because you don't have to disrupt, you can just leapfrog, is much less. You test business models and from there you can grow. So it's not everything happening anymore in Silicon Valley. Yeah, with gazillions of funds provided, but really um, in a very different, scale, different, different opportunity scale and an outlook going forward.
3: Yeah, one of my favorite books is called Africa's Business Revolution, um, written by a number of McKinsey partners about how there's just tremendous potential in Africa untapped. Um, for a lot of the reasons that you say, technology, fast adoption, leapfrogging, and even Internet of Things, which I don't think we've even seen what that's going to produce in terms of business models. But it's super exciting. Um, so we're looking at that beyond capital. So let's turn to you personally. Here we go. Um, yeah. <laughs> My let's favorite dive part. In. No so pressure. <laughs> we know that you are either in self-imposed isolation or um, government-imposed quarantine in Switzerland at the moment. Tell us what your morning routine looks like in your new state of habitation and being.
0: Yes, it is a totally new discipline. Somebody who has been traveling 80% of his life around the world, either to fundraise or to deploy. Um, That's a big change. Now, fortunately, we're not running a logistics or manufacturing portion, which, you know, which is different when you employ thousands of employees. You know, now we have a service with service providers. So actually this, um, the, the concept of a distributed organization is already within Bamboo. Now, putting that in a scenario with the family, the kids, everybody at home, three generations, because you wanted to have everybody close at this st- stage because we don't know how, how long it will, will take. Yeah, I don't think it would be as fast in, as in Wuhan, you know, that's basically, you know, two months and it's done. It just will take longer. So the the day is different. I have probably, I stand up in the morning normally, you know, I do the same routine, we have the same thing in the morning, we do the family, we have a breakfast. But after that I'm really basically in my office having one Zoom call after the other <laughs> until the evening.
2: Yeah. <laughs> our new best friend. I, yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> makes sense.
0: so again because we we try to do as best as we can from a distance. It took me the first week, I was totally lost. I couldn't, you know, I had to adjust myself and have my kids coming in saying, Daddy, you are here, we need to play. And I'm not. I'm here, but I have to work, so they had to. Was a learning curve around that. Um, but at this stage, let's say there is this concern when looking at news and not going. that's going on? How long it will last? It is a learning with the family to really bond and appreciate the value of it. And then, of course, the conversation, which are much deeper for many people, on you know, impact on making a difference in the world, on using capital as a force for good, or at least the business as a force for good. So this is really, really enriching and in a very vulnerable way, you know, because as people don't know, because before everything was good and great and I'm successful and I keep this image, and this is changing. So there is a true positive side but I cannot deny that sometimes I have to you know with my concerns and looking forward and the speed of things happening in the past compared to now, you know not being close to things, it is not easy
2: so now for the most important question in your in your as you're getting yourself revved up in the morning is it is it coffee tea or caffeine free I'm
0: a coffee guy. Coffee. I come, you know, first thing I wake up, go down, I give my dog his food, and then I have a coffee, and then I start like a good old PC, even though I don't use a PC. <laughs> you know, I have to boot up and then I can start cruising.
2: <laughs> I've switched back to coffee. I, yeah. I don't, I don't know. I'm still yeah. on my mushroom
3: coffee ad. <laughs> oh <my. laughs>
2: yeah
0: i don't understand that um however i use a tea when going to bed you know
3: (laughs) yes so um turning just back to bamboo as we as we wrap up you view yourself as an entrepreneur um even though you are an investor does that role come naturally to you? Um, have you always thought of yourself as an entrepreneur? And also, what does that mean to you as a professional?
0: Looking at the younger generations, the risk, level of risk, taking risk, is very different compared to when I started off. You know, you do your study, and after the study you get a job, you learn your things, you do a, you know an MBA, and after the MBA you have a certain skill set always dreaming to do entrepreneurial things but not really daring to and then you're married and then you have kids i mean i have five kids so there's a you know uh so then you have certain responsibilities and i was always dreamt to do it but there was always a saying you know when to do it and it's too risky and then you have the golden handcuffs when you're in big corporate you know because things are good and you have certain infrastructure and you have the You have a big brand on your chest, you know, where you believe it's you, but it's probably more the brand than you. So those are the things where it took for me quite some while to dare to move into entrepreneurship. You know, and entrepreneurship is painful. And I look at too many friends of mine right now where everything was fine four weeks ago. And now they're really concerned because you know, the business they're running, which are all significant. You know, you have a run rate, you have certain debt, you have certain things. So it is a different pain point being an entrepreneur. And it has positives and negatives. Probably what I most appreciate on that, doing things, actually, especially with my partner, you know, because it's not just me alone and I don't have to be number one. And I joined him as in, in his legacy and he's one of the really pioneers in Impact Investing. And I'm very grateful to to be with him is that we can bounce off things it's you know we're not alone but again it is not a work in the park so on that end um, the freedom the entrepreneurial freedom you have compared to being a hired gun um, has its positives but of course um, there is a price you have to pay for it
3: what mark do you and bamboo want to leave on the world if we were to look 10 years out what would that look
0: like so our ambition because it's you know as we are we've moved with bamboo from uh, our own funds one two and three and four into a platform with partnerships and we believe we are an inclusive uh, area not an exclusive area we don't look at competitors we look at opportunities doing things together with others in order to scale impact so When I joined the company and we wrapped up in 10 years or when Jean-Philippe started of impacting a hundred million people traceably with about $300 million in investment. Our goal is for the next year to do a 10X. So the 10X really is on the impact side on people. But of course, you need more money to do more things. Um, sure. So that's our ambition and that's our dream, which would ideally include really a democratization of impact investing, not just for ultra high net worth or qualified investors, not just for the institutional ones, but everyone. And we have that so often people saying, I would love to invest 10,000, 15,000 into your funds and what you're doing on the different theories of change, but we cannot. That's just from, you know, from a legal perspective, so our dream is to really enter an area of uh, democratization of impact investing.
3: Do you have an idea what your total impact is currently?
0: So we went from, I mean, things are a little bit, a little bit exponential on our end, just because of the, the scale of the companies also we invest in. But we were uh, end of 2018 at 152 million people. And we should know our results end of 2019 because, of, you know, tracking everything in the probably next two or three weeks. So I'm not sure what the number is yet. But again, we are pointing, you know, in on an increase as our companies have been scaling considerably. And again, we are, he is rated, we ranked, we make sure that we have external parties also looking at our impact, not just making our own numbers. But again, I would hope to have a significant number moving from 150 to 200 million. But let's see. I don't know yet.
3: Incredible. Incredible. And, it, and I think it shows that impact can be real when you start approaching 200 million
2: that's lots, huge impacting
3: a lot of 200 million people
2: that's amazing that is really something congratulations on that body of work I to agree. date and to 10x that i want to i want to have you back on the show absolutely <laughs> and honestly it'll be a quarter of the this.
3: planet by
0: then. yeah exactly <laughs> but again you know looking at what we're happening right now with sdg 500 with un agencies with ngos and these things not just us It is really a much larger footprint going into hundreds of companies, I believe. I truly believe we will be able to deliver that. Again, the ticket sizes are smaller and you go in more companies, but the scale effect afterwards will be much larger.
3: Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Florian. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you and hear about your work at Bamboo and your legacy that you're leaving in the next 10 years. And we can't wait to follow your work. And we would love to, of course, have you back on the show to discuss more in the future. Thank you.
0: I'm delighted. Thank you for inviting me. I'm very pleased. I'm a big fan of uh, what you guys do, Eva, here uh, with Beyond Capital. So on a very different scale, but I think very synergistic. So it's a great delight I'm honored to be here and I would love to come back in the future with hopefully great news.
2: Thanks, Florian.
1: All the best.
0: Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye
1: Bye-bye. Once again, it's clear that a business leader with good intentions can create an impressive social, environmental, and ethical impact. There is always a way to put meaning behind the mission of a company and we can all make a difference.
2: You've taken the first step by listening to the Beyond Capital Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Don't forget to rate, review, and if you haven't yet, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. For more information, go to beyondcapitalpodcast.com. You can follow me on Twitter at E.A. stevens, And
1: follow me on Instagram at Conscious Investor. Until next time.
2: Bye, everyone. So, Florian, um, tell me, 10 years in the future, what mark do you think you and your company will leave on the world?